Anyway, James chapter 1 tonight. James chapter 1. <clears throat> Been kind of wandering around the last month or so on Sunday night and wondering what I should start. I like to preach through books, and so this week I was thinking about the book of James. So anyway, James chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall in the divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The title of the message tonight is, Growing in Grace to Perfection. Growing in Grace to Perfection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege that we have to open your precious word. And I pray, Father, that as we consider and listen and hear to the word of God tonight, that we'd give heed, that we allow you to search our own hearts and... uh, allow you to have your will and way, and Father, allow you to um, search us and allow you to um, uh, open those things in our lives and reveal them things to us that are not pleasing to thee, that we might be perfected into the image of Christ, which is your desire for us. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So growing in grace to perfection... Of course, the word perfect in the Bible, in this context here, means brought to its end, finished. Lacking nothing necessary to completeness, again, perfect. And the word entire, it says entire wanting nothing. The word entire means complete in all parts, in no part lacking or unsound, complete, entire, whole. So when we're talking about God... And it's God that desires to work in us to bring us to a place of completion or of, of, of uh, uh, like, like we would if you're making something or you're doing a job and it's not really right until it's completed. Uh, you know, our... Our renovation here at the church is not really completed because we still have other things we want to do, you know, with those two rooms back there. Uh, We don't want to keep those curtains forever, you know. Uh, We don't want that paneling back there looking at me forever. I mean, we want to get rid of it. It's just a matter of when we get the funds, we're going to do it, you know. It's not completed yet. It's not perfect. And that's the idea here. You know, God wants to work in our lives. You know, he, he takes us, we're born in this world sinners, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. And, and so when we come to Christ as our Lord and Savior, we lack things. There's areas of our life, every one of us, that is displeasing to the Lord. And there will be until the day you die. You know, there were things... You know, David, David was called a man after God's own heart. There were things in his life that was not pleasing to the Lord. That, that's very obvious. But you know, David, 
after he repented with Bathsheba, he, he, he worked at, and he, you know, of course he penned all the Psalms, but he worked at, again, perfecting his life. But even to the day he died, he did things that God opposed. Numbering the people. That was close to the end of his life. He numbered the people. Now, now to us, at least to me, and, and maybe that's just my thinking, that wasn't the worst, and it wasn't. It wasn't the worst thing he did in the world. But it brought suffering on the nation of Israel because of it, and himself. Uh, because, again, he should have known better. And so, in each of our lives, there are things that are lacking. There are things that are not perfect for God. Now, God is not giving up on you. He's not giving up on you. He will never give up on you. If you're his child, he's never going to give up on you. He's going to continue to work. Because that's what, he's, that's what he wants and desires. Because that, that brings you into closer fellowship with him. So, so that's what God is doing, growing us to perfection. Now, the program, number, first of all tonight, as we consider this, it's the program of diverse temptations. That's how he does it. That's the program. It's not very, doesn't sound real nice, I know. But if you notice in verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall in the diverse temptation. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have trials and troubles in my life, I don't go around shouting for joy. And I don't really find in the Bible where other Christians did that either. So if you don't do that, don't think that you're not spiritual. But, we do need to come to a place where we understand why God allows trials and temptations and these things, which, by the way, are a part of life and are the result of the curse of sin. They're not really God's choosing, but they are things that God allows uh, into our lives, and that is to perfect us. Now, notice it says here to count or to consider or to deem or think these things uh, a cause or occasion of joy. If we, would, if we could see with the eye of faith that God, if, and, and come to the place where we realize that, okay, God is allowing this for His glory and my good, we would not be upset when it happens, when they happen. Uh the word divers simply means various or different. And, of course, the word temptation means the trial of a man's fidelity. It's the idea of, fidelity has the idea of faithfulness. So the trial of his fidelity, his integrity, his virtue, his constancy. And that's the, the idea there is of consistency, etc. Also, an enticement to sin. It can be an enticement to sin. Now, we have to understand this. The temptation is not sin. The temptation is not sin. If we fail to respond in a right way to our trials, they can turn into sin. They turn into sin. But the temptation is not sin. Sometimes we feel people feel bad or feel good because they were tempted. You know, we're going to be tempted. We live in a world of sin, and we live in a world of, of flesh. We are going to be tempted. The temptation is not sin. It's how we respond to the temptation, whether it becomes sin or not. So, 
know, Eve, Eve seeing the fruit that was desired to make one wise was not sin. Although the desire led to what? Her sin. And the seeing of it led to her sin. So, so again, and, 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 and you know, uh, even the tempting of Satan to eat it was not sin. It was the taking of it and eating it. Achan seeing the Babylonian garment, which you've heard about in Sunday school last uh, Sunday, and the gold and the silver was not sin. It was the taking of it. He saw it, then he took it. What he should have said was, boy, you know, he, he could have even maybe said this. And I, don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm going a little too far. Oh, boy, that'd be nice to have that, but it's cursed. I can't have it. I don't want it. I don't want to be accursed. See, that wouldn't have been sin, but he took it. Abraham, of course, you know, the, the temptation to go to Egypt was not sin, but the idea of going to Egypt was you know, I understand that in the Old Testament, famine was also often a disciplinary judgment or a test of God's people. And so uh, Abraham was tempted to go to Egypt, which he did, and, and Egypt is a type of the world. It speaks of Abraham going back to what he already left, the era of the Chaldees, a place of idolatry. That's what Egypt was. Job's trials did not cause him to sin. Again, temptation of fearing people with the word of God through the man of God brought the downfall of King Saul, but that temptation was not sin. It was rejecting the counsel of the man of God, Samuel, and heeding to the people that was the sin. So again, trials, you know, the things that God used to work in our life are trials, different temptations, and the temptations are not sin, it is when we resist the will of God that they become sin. But these trials that God allows into our lives are the program of perfecting us. Now, I want you to notice, secondly, the providence of God in trials. Now, this is all in the providence of God. Now, providence, the word providence means uh, foreseeing care and guidance. In other words, God is working in your life to bring about, bring you to a place that of perfection, of maturity in him. So, and he's, he's foreseeing or he's guiding that. And, you, and sometimes, you know, sometimes, and I'll be honest, sometimes we are in a situation and we wonder, how in the world can God be in this? But we have to just trust God, for He is sovereign. If you notice in verse 2 through 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall in the divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So we have to ask our question is, who is allows these trials? If God is sovereign, who is allowing these trials? You know, Ephesians 1.11, let me turn over there for just a minute, keep your place in James, we'll be back. Ephesians 1.11, Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, makes an interesting statement, and this, really the first 11 verses of this talk about predestination 
The word predestination is used a couple times. But in verse 11 it says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, that's our salvation, and we have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. Then he says this, Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now the word predestinated means to predetermine or to decide beforehand. So, so God is pre, has predestinated according to His purpose. It's not, it's not according to what I want or my purpose. It's according to His purpose. So God is in His providence foreseeing with care and guidance working your life to bring in line with agreement with His purpose. That's what He's doing. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When God saved your soul, he started a good work in you. And he's going to continue to work in your life until the day of Jesus Christ. That's talking about until the Lord comes for us. So he's going to continue. So he is trying to perfect us. You know, who allowed? You think about this. Who allowed Job to have trials? We know that Satan came to God and said, and and God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in the earth. One that fears God and eschews evil. And Satan said, let me touch him and he'll curse you to his face. God said, okay. You can touch it. You can, you can take what he has. Basically, that's what he said. You can take what he has. And God allowed Satan to destroy all the possessions of Job. And Job's, and the testimony of Job's response was, in all this, Job's in not. And, of course, again, Satan appears to him and he said, well, if you skin for skin, in other words, if you let me touch his body, then he'll curse you. God said, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. That would be hard to live with. That would be hard to say, God, I still love you. And I'm still trusting you. But, and God allowed Satan to take all his family except his wife. Now, did God forsake Job? No. Did Job have thoughts that maybe God had forgotten about him? Yes, he did. You know, Job was human too. But he was a very godly man. He, he had thoughts that God had forgotten about him and was not helping him. Where is he? That's kind of what he was saying. Where is he? But he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And see, so God in his providence is working to perfect us. In Psalm 138, verse 8, it says, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. You know, we all think about it. this. This is for me. 
God is working to perfect me. O Lord, or thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine hands. You know, perfecting us is the work of God, you know, and he does it through his churches, and not today, through his churches and a pastor. In Old Testament times, it was through a prophet. God would send prophets. Some of them they listened to and some of them they stoned. Sort of like today. I don't have anybody that's recently got stoned, but I know there's some in some parts of the world that get put to death. I know a missionary in India that has been beaten. He's American. You know, Ephesians 4 bears this out. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints. There's our word, perfecting. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so, God allows trials in our life conflicts to work in our lives and, and, and then perfect us through the teaching and instruction of the prophet of God or the man of God. But, um, but I want you to think about this also. What brought the desire of the children of Israel to return to Canaan? Do you ever think about that? I mean... For a while, when they were in Egypt, they were prospering. So what brought about the desire of the children of Israel to turn back to the land of Canaan, the land that God promised them, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What brought the desire for them to return back there? They were made slaves. It was a hard bondage. Uh, bondage, trials, hardships. Who again? Who allowed them? You know, and we might say, well, Pharaoh did it. You know, Pharaoh had his own motives, but God allowed him to bring about his purposes. His purposes. We know Pharaoh had no idea that God was using him to fulfill his purposes, because Pharaoh said, "Who's God that I should obey him?" He had no idea. The spiritual implications of what he was doing. And the reason, of course, Pharaoh did it was, he said that, you know, they're getting to be too many, and if war breaks out, they could rise up within us and and help overthrow our own country. Therefore, we're going to make slaves of them. He didn't realize in the providence of God, God was using him to stir up his people, to give them a desire to return back to the land of promise where God could fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants. See, sometimes God allows things in our lives to bring us to places where we will get the help we need. You know, I I often think back in my life, and and I, I think of, you know, why I'm different than the vast majority of my family. 
And I think it's because of the things that God allowed in my life that at the time I did not like. They were difficult. They were hard. But God used them. You know, the providence of God caused Caesar to tax the people which required those people to return to their place of birth and brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in the place God said he would be. Luke chapter 2. Now, I'm sure that wasn't pleasant for Mary, who's ready to be delivered with child, to ride or walk, ride a mule, a donkey or whatever, however she got there, or walk all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem just to pay that crooked Caesar his taxes. That's what I've thought about it. But God in his providence was bringing to pass his purposes. So we see the, God of Prov- uh, the providence of God here in the trials. Then I want to notice the third thing, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but God's purposes or purpose in trials, verses 3 and 4, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Notice he says in verse 4, that ye may be perfect. So, he is trying your faith. The word trying means proving. You know, the book of James is about proving our faith. Faith without works is dead. We're going to see that a little bit later in chapter 2. It's all about proving our faith. And, and this is the way, by, through trials and through tests, conflicts, this is the way we are proved of genuine faith. Proverbs 29.15 says this, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left himself bringeth his mother to shame. Do you know if God just left you alone? Let me say it another way. If I wasn't... If there were some passage of Scripture I just wouldn't bother with and just tell you all positive things, I could... We could And you might be able to say, I just let you alone. And God would be letting you alone. But you know what? I would be doing what God has commanded me to do. A child left himself bringing us to his mother's name. If the Lord were to leave you to yourself, what would you be like? If you were without trials, without correction, you would be bringing shame, and you would bring shame to the name of God. Just like a child without correction is an embarrassment to his mother. See, God is, again, God is working to perfect us. And the idea of perfection entire means brought to an end, a finished product, not lacking anything, being complete. The idea of mature in the Lord. And, and so he's proving us. Uh, <clears throat> we're trying us. 
excuse me, uh, that we would with patience endure. Again, notice verse 4. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be a perfect entire, wanting nothing. Now, there's a word here mentioned two times that I really don't care for. That's patience. But if you're going to be matured, you're going to have to have your patience tried. Somebody said patience is being able, Andrew, you're like this, Drew, you're like this, being able to idle your motor when you feel like stripping the gears. Of course, the Bible definition is steadfastness, constancy, there's that consistency again, endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by the greatest trials and sufferings. And again, think of Job. Bible talks, James chapter 5 is going to talk about the patience of Job. He was unswerved from his trust in God. He didn't do anything rashly. He didn't speak ill with his mouth. He was constant, consistent. And that's what God's working at in our lives. That's why he allows, that's why he allows trials and tests and conflicts in our life. Uh, you know, it talks about faith. The other part of the word that's in that definition is piety. Piety is reverence towards God and authorities and relations, all to whom dutiful regard or reverence is due. You know, and again, and again, you know, that has to do with respect to those in authority over you. And so, you know, God allows these tests. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, <clears throat> we haven't got this far yet in our memory, but Psalm 119, in verses 67 and verse 71, there's uh, a couple of verses there that speak to this subject. Psalm 119, 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. There's the child left himself. For I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. See, we need to learn. We have to learn, and it is learned. Just like a child has to learn to be obedient. We have to learn to trust God. To obey God. To have patience. And allow God to work in situations in life. And that goes with believing the word of God and believing his prophets. In, in, in the Old Testament, in 2 Chronicles 20.20, 20, says they rose early in the morning, went forth in the wilderness of Tekoa, and as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, uh, they're in the middle of a big battle. They're getting ready for a big battle. A conflict. And Jehoshaphat said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his uh, prophets, so shall ye prosper. The prophets had told them what to do. He said, believe his prophets. See, the prophets were the ones that gave them the word of God, the instruction from God. So he says, you need to believe the Lord your God. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And of course, when you come to the New Testament, we're talking about, you know, 
listening and giving heed to the word of God, to the commands of God. And again, through the man of God, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have a rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And so we're going to hear next week, Lord willing, about my responsibility to the church to teach the whole counsel of God, the parts we like and the parts we don't. So how, you know, how was Israel challenged? How were they corrected by God in the Old Testament? How was Eli corrected? God sent a prophet. How was David corrected, the king? How was he corrected? God sent a prophet, Nathan. Nathan said, thou art the man. In Psalm 141, go to Psalm 141 for just a minute. Psalm 141, David, this is a psalm of David. And this is a verse that I have often considered and tried to take heed to, even though it's sometimes very difficult. Psalm 141, verse 5 says, Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. Let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. Now, from what I have told, from what commentators say, this psalm was written when David was fleeing from Saul, and has the account, or is considered the account when when David had the opportunity to kill Saul in the cave, but he didn't. Then afterwards, he goes out from a distance, reproves Saul. But in that context, he says, let the righteous smite me. But it wasn't the righteous who was trying to smite him. It was King Saul who was in rebellion against God. And so David is saying, let them smite me. It'll be a kindness. It'll be a kindness. Let them reprove me. It shall be like an excellent oil. Uh, Spurgeon, in his commentary, and the treasure of the Bible says this, in uh, considering this verse, he says, uh, of the many contradictions and interpretations, uh, let me, interpretations, uh, which have been proposed, the most probable is, that which makes the sentence mean that the sufferings endured by the good man, even at the hands of the wicked, are chastisements inflicted by a righteous God in justice and with mercy, and as such may be likened to festive ointment, which the head of the sufferer should not refuse, as he will still have need of a consolation and occasion to invoke God in the midst of trials and mischiefs yet to be experienced. So what he's saying here is, look, we ought, not to, we ought not to refuse the corrections or the smiting that the righteous give us, lest God doesn't just cease correcting. And so the idea there is, look, we need to respond to God's correction. Trials many times are given us or brought into our life to perfect us and to correct us. But again, 
as I said earlier, there's no, tempt- there's no sin in the temptation unless we respond in a wrong way. You know, the opposite of that is, Proverbs 14, 29, he that is slow to wrath is a great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, 9 says, Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. And so if we turn away in anger from the Lord, as many in the Bible did, it will bring judgment. It will exalt folly in our life. As I mentioned, you know, Genesis 12, God brings Abraham into the land. And he said, all this will I give thee. And then there's a famine. It's a disciplinary testing. Oh, there's that word we don't like. Disciplinary. Now, we parents like to discipline our children because we wanted them to behave. But we don't always want discipline in our life, do we? You know, discipline is a hated word today. That's why we've got so many problems in our world. But discipline is what makes a man perfect. Discipline. But Abraham goes south to Egypt, the world, going back to where he left, just a different location. He gets into a conflict. He gets into a conflict with Pharaoh because he lied. You know, when you go someplace you ought not be or do something you ought not do, you're going to get into conflict. Or respond, and, and what this is all caused by was he responded in a wrong way to the temptation, to the trial. He should have stayed in Canaan because God said, I will give thee this land, not Egypt, this land. You know, he ends up being shamed by favor for lying, and you think about it, he brings reproach upon the name of the Lord. Conflicts in our lives do not cause us to sin. They reveal who we really are. You know, sometimes we'll say, you know, I've heard people say, well, this caused him to do this and that. No, it didn't. It may have been a temptation, but it didn't cause it didn't cause it. Just revealed us. Conflicts are often fruit of our not accepting God's providence in our life. Think about it. Saul had already been rejected as king. And instead of accepting the counsel and the correction, he became a fearful, angry, and irritated man. And when David kills Goliath, and the women sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand, Saul takes from that conflict between himself and, 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 and really the greatest asset that he has, his most loyal and faithful servant in his army, David, and he goes out to kill him. Why? Because he refused to accept the counsel of the prophet of God. Samuel said, your kingdom's finished. You know somebody else that told, was told he was finished? was Moses. And you know what Moses did with that? He prepared Joshua. He prepared Joshua. 
See, when we fail to allow the Lord, through the counsel of his word, to perfect us, we cease to grow in our walk with the Lord. Proverbs 27, 21 says this, As the pining, the fining pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. Go to Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to comment on that in a minute. But in Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. <clears throat> Malachi 3, 3 and 4 illustrates this for us. He says, And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, after this purifying, then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Now, what I'm told or read about a refiner is, the refiner heats the silver or the gold, whatever it is, and begins to, the, the, the impurities begin to come to the top as it's heated. The more and more it's heated, the more impurities that it boils out of it, and it comes to the top. And a, and a silversmith will, will sit by that, and he, he will not leave it. He cannot leave it, because if he, if he gives it, if he overheats it, he can ruin the silver. And the Bible says here that the Lord sits as a purifier of silver. You're the silver. We're the silver. And he's sitting with you and allowing things in your life that cause friction to purify you. See, that silversmith will sit there and it gets hot, as it gets hotter and hotter and he keeps skimming off the impurities, the things that are not silver, until he can see his own image in it. And see, God's going to work in your life and in mine until he can see his own image in it. He wants to see his own image in us, in our everyday life. You know, David went through the finding pot and the furnace, and he endured. You know, again, Proverbs 20, 27, 21 says this, As the finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. David went through the, 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 the finding pot and the furnace. He went through some severe trials. He endured, and he allowed those trials to refine him. David is praised. Saul, like Israel in the wilderness, they were in the furnace. They were tried. They were tried. They were tested. And they rebelled. They would not heed his counsel. They were not content with what God gave them. Why? Because they failed to believe the word of God through the man of God. Of course, Saul died a miserable man. Those in the wilderness all died wandering around in the wilderness, never saw the land of blessing. You know, some Christians go through life just never growing. 
Never getting victory in their life, over their sin in their life. Why? Because they don't endure. They don't allow God. They don't see the tests and trials and the conflicts in their life as God trying to get their attention. And so they never get the victory that God, or the blessing in their life that God desires them to have. You know, I, I thought of this the, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, speaking about the children of Israel when they, when they first left the land of Egypt. It says, It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and return to Egypt. And God will not tempt us above that which we are able. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God will not tempt us above that which we are able to endure, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. God severely tempted Job. But he did not tempt him beyond what he was able to endure. You may not be able to endure what Job did. God knew these people would not be able to endure going straight to the land of the Philistines. So guess what? He didn't take them there. You remember that refiner sitting at the silver? You know what he's doing? He's watching his silver. God's sitting by your side. He lives within you by his spirit. If you're saved. And he will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able. But he will allow trials in your life to bring about his image in your life. The question is, are you going to allow him to purify your life? The process there's a process, is a continuous one until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you allowing that process in your life? Let's pray.